Hi, Bruce here. In this episode, we interview Lance Wiggs, manager of the Punakaiki Fund, a venture capital fund. We discuss the New Zealand venture capital landscape and how a venture capital firm operates. Lance takes a different approach to most VCs in how he has structured the LP side of the Punakaiki Fund, with capital raising from wholesale and retail investors over time, rather than a smaller number of institutional investors up front. This is partly due to the shortage of New Zealand venture capital investors, something we also discuss. We finish off with his career path, including assisting Trade Me with valuation and his time at Yale. I thoroughly enjoyed discussing venture capital with Lance. I hope you enjoy the discussion as much as I did. Hello, I'm Bruce McGeckin, and this is the Curious Kiwi Capitalist Podcast. Thanks, Lance, for doing this uh, podcast episode about venture capital. I thought I'd get right into it. What's the what's the New Zealand venture capital scene? Well, it depends on how you define it. Uh, and let's start with the stripped venture capital scene. And there's really only three of us. There's Punakaiki Fund, which is us. Uh, there's Global from Day One Fund Two, which is run by a chap called Chintaka Ranatonga. Uh, and then there's Movac, which is based in Wellington, uh, and Phil McCall is the founder of that. And each of these firms, we raise capital from investors and uh, we look for companies that are growing very, very quickly and have potential to become extraordinarily large. You know, to, to be a, a little trite, we're all looking for the next zero. And we often, you know, find them at a very early stage and, and you, you help them help them grow as much as you can and yes. perhaps pass them on to the next funder uh, after that. And we've passed uh, three of our deals across to Movac, or they've taken them. I wouldn't say we've passed them. Um, and they've uh, followed on, funded, and, uh, and they're going really well. The, if you change the definition slightly, though, to say it's high-growth investing, then uh, you don't just include the, the venture capital funds. Then you have a few different categories, and it gets rapidly very messy, and everyone's got a different perspective of what this actually is. Uh, the government has defined it with their, their current uh, venture capital fund bill uh, and policy statement as being, um, as, as the Series A and B space as being from two to $10 million, $20 million rounds. Right. And that, that means an investment round into a company, they're raising money to, uh, to accelerate their growth. Two to $20 million could happen at a variety of stages in a company. It could be actually the fifth round into the company, or it could be the first round. Mm. Uh, and the strict government definition, uh, you know, if you, that first round could could ostensibly be seed capital, uh, and the the fifth round could be you know mezzanine or growth capital, uh, and uh, or even an IPO, because uh, New Zealand is quite small. Uh, so the government just said, "Well, let's make it two to twenty million and, and leave it there." And and I quite like that definition. I, I look at the amount of money going into a company rather than the how many rounds they've done that sort of stuff. Uh, but in New Zealand, we have angels, uh, and these are generally uh, we have uh, cl- the club angels, which are formed into groups. Uh, in each of the cities, uh, and uh, and those are um, generally uh, the companies get up in front of a room full of um, investors who have been drinking and uh, <laughs> and they pitch, um, and then they go and meet the, uh, the the individuals later on, and uh, and hopefully you know get together a, a large group of investors. Uh, you have the uh, the angels who are not affiliated with a club. Uh, and these are the ones who uh, have who write who are the real angels, as far as I'm concerned. They might write much larger checks, not very many of them, not very frequently at all, uh, but uh, much more thoughtful about how they're placed and so on. Uh, and some of those folks 
uh, a, a percentage of those, a small percentage, can write very large checks, so mm-hmm. 5, 10, 15, $20 million checks. And those are the ones you don't generally hear about at all, uh, who are doing, you know, some of them doing extraordinarily well, thank you very much. And we're talking about an absolute handful of people here. Uh, the, so they're, you know, those checks are bigger than the checks that we can write, uh, and, uh, and good on them for that. Uh, and then above us, you've got the private equity space, uh, and uh, the, the government actually put Movac into the space, but they see themselves as a venture capital firm. These are companies that can write 20, 30, 40, $50 million checks, um, and not just five or ten million dollar checks, and and they'll you know if they're smart or they've already got two things they can do. They can invest in kind of older, sleepy companies, turn them around and grow them, and then sell them. So the investment into Bell T is a good example of that. Great company, great brand that that let it go down the hill over the years, and mm-hmm. they went in there and reinvigorated it. Yeah. Uh, and the other side of that is uh, investing in companies that are um, you know have gone been through the high growth um, early stages, sitting there at quite a few million in revenue, maybe 5, 10, 20 million revenue, and they need you know, a much bigger check to really accelerate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Iran's um, medical, uh, that changed its name to Sequent, uh, that's uh, Iran's Geo, rather, it changed its name to Sequent, is a good example of that sort of um, investment, mm-hmm. um, which, which has done very well. Magic Memory is another one. So our sector is characterized by one thing that we all most of us agree on, uh, not all, and that is that we don't have enough money uh, in New Zealand for the post-angel stage, let's call it. Now, not everyone agrees with that. So some people say that if you're a good enough company, you'll find the cash. And the truly great companies generally can find the cash. But how do you agree on what a truly great company is? And from what I see out there, there's a lot of companies that are not truly great that are finding the cash. And there's a lot of companies that are truly great that struggle to find the cash. Mm. And overall, if we just had more money sloshing around in the ecosystem, uh, we would get more of the great companies funded. The second thing, though, that's, I think, quite important is that money is a weapon to win. So we can have a wonderful company. We were talking about Timely before, um, you know, or, or Vend. Uh, these are wonderful companies. Uh, that are doing extraordinarily well globally. Uh, and Timely, Timely's last round, it was publicized, was $7 million from Mobac. Uh, they, uh, if they were sitting in the USA, you know, I, I really hate to think on how much money they would be raising if they mm-hmm. were to raise now, maybe $50, $100 million. Mm-hmm. It's a quite a different paradigm. And what you can do with that sort of money is, is so different from what you could do with you know, five, 10, 15 million dollars. So that's the big thing that's missing here in New Zealand is that ability to write the really big, what I call the mongrel checks uh, and uh, into companies that are doing very well, but still the way we look at it here a bit early. And so just to summarize, uh, all the, the, the flip side of all this is that we are very good in New Zealand at creating high growth companies that are very, very frugal with their money, with their resources. Uh, that are um, that, that are really you know, they're cut to the bone, and that when you do invest in them, they uh, they're very good use, uses of that money. We are not so good at the hyper growth stuff. Uh, we don't have any enterprise customers here in New Zealand, so everyone has to learn how to do that offshore, and we don't have many retail uh, you know customers end users. Uh, so we're not very good at the the Facebooks and and those sorts of things. Uh, but we are very, very good at the business-to-business, uh, you know, software as a service in particular, software where the, where the other businesses are relatively small. Right, 
Right. Mm. Let's talk more about that venture capital shortage. How did it come up originally? Where did it? Uh, uh, what was the origination of that, of the capital gap? Because it's been talked about for for, for many years. We have this current government now putting three hundred million into it. Where did it originate? Well, depends how far back you want to go. Go as far back as you want. Well, yeah. let's go. Let's go back to. Um, uh, you know, what is venture capital? Venture capital was originally uh, the, the capital that you would use when you invested in uh, trading ex- expeditions. Uh, and you think, you right. know, caravans uh, going across uh, uh, Mesmetopia or something like this, and, and, and you'd actually put money down, uh, and, uh, and then your, your, um, your general partner, your trader, would get on the, um, you know, so, so the finances would put money down, the general partner would get on their camels and go for, you know, half a year, a year-long journey, um, sell all the things that they've been funded to sell, buy a whole bunch of other things with the money that they, um, that they had or vice versa, and then take them back. Um, and then, the, um, the, you know, in today's paradigm, the, uh, the, 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 the trader would have gotten 20% of the upside of that and, uh, and a 2% fee uh, for the whole lot. And, yeah. and that's, that's where it all started. And it's a, it's, a, it's a early form of banking in a way, but it's highly speculative risk capital um, at, at that end of town, you could you need to have the wherewithal to be able to lose everything because you know your, your camel train gets taken apart by bandits and it's all over. So that's where it started, and 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 over the years, you can imagine that the reputation even back then was uh, was was good and bad. You know, they're making lots of money, but they're they're, they're sharks. Just, just to add to that story, yeah. so this is the same story with sailing ships. Uh, yeah, and then that turned into and, the companies and, and, and so on. Right? Yeah, they, yeah. They, that's right. So the sailing ships would raise debt and, and they sunk and the creditors would demand the debt would be paid by the limited partners. Right. Uh, and that, well, that, was, that goes to the insurance syndicates at Lloyd's and, and all that sort of stuff as well because that's, that's, where, that's where Lloyd's... Um, Lords of London, um, you know, the, the syndicate would back the whole ship right, yeah. um, for, for the total loss. Yeah, so it's, all that old stuff is fascinating. And, and then fast forward into the, into the 70s, 60s in, in the USA, and you had, um, you, you had this venture capital industry, uh, which has been taken along for years, but really, really grow very rapidly. And it was the same thing that raised money from high net worths, from families, uh, and then over the years, increasingly from uh, not-for-profit foundations and trusts, and uh, and and then you know big funds, uh, and they would invest it in high-growth opportunities. And again, the fees were generally two percent management fee to look after the money or to, to pay for your your office, um, and then twenty percent of the upside. We go through boom and bust cycles. Sometimes you do very, very well. Everyone makes lots of money. Sometimes uh, there's a crash, such as in uh, 99, 2000, 2001. Um, all the funding dries up um, and your investments you know, all blow apart and you know, the returns are terrible. Uh, so in New Zealand, uh, there wasn't an, really an industry at all. There were a few people doing a little bit of things. But in 2000 and 2001, the government um, decided to say, well, let's do something about this. They created the New Zealand Venture Investment Fund. Uh, and that uh, in, in a process that it is a little bit scarily similar to what they're doing now, uh, they selected some fund managers. Uh, they, um, the returns on that fund were minus 4% to September last year, something like that, minus 3 minus 4%. Right. The IRR, sure. uh, which is extraordinarily bad as, as, you know, in, in, in such a great um, time. The, there are a few issues uh, with that. And I don't really want to go into them here, but the fundamental result was that it destroyed the asset class for investors. They look at it and say, "Well, I don't want to put money in venture capital. That's where you go to lose." Yeah. And and they were right. 
Uh, they, they tried to re-energize this uh, later on, 2005-ish, something like that. Um, and uh, there was one fund that did very, very well. They've got a 49% IRR. That was Peter Thiel's Villar. Um, there's a whole other story. Um, he, he was a smart guy. He yeah. saw the free money. Um, basically, the government will put money in, and then you could buy them out for a bond rate, uh, which he did. Uh, and, um, and he put all his money into zero. Been into Vend, been into Pacific Fiber, which is something else I was affiliated with. Um, but, you know, most of it went into zero, which is a listed company at the time, and he was allowed to do it. Uh, made a fortune out of it. And, uh, and I look at that and say, good on you, mate. Why didn't any of the other venture capital firms put money into zero or trade me or any of these other great firms that, that mm. were around? And the, the problem is they, they will put money into super speculative seed stage uh, investments by and large. Right. And, uh, and that was never going to be a, a win. Uh, and so, and that's, that's really, and meanwhile, so we had Trade Me, and I was part of the, the, um, the sale process there. Um, we had, we had zero startup and a whole, and then increasing number of companies just kept starting mm-hmm. and, and growing. And, you know, zero started in, I think, 2006, something like that, 2007. Trade Me, Trade Me exited in 2006. Uh, that's 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that inspired a lot of people. A lot of people were inside those businesses and have gone on to do their own thing. We're, and then those companies themselves, many of those have grown quite large. I think Pushpay, uh, you know, Vend, uh, uh, and uh, and so on. And in turn, they spawn out new startups. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've, we've you know we've seen um, Push uh, Pushpay f- people jump out of there and start their own thing, that sort of stuff. And as a result, we have this uh, we have this venture capital ecosystem that really struggles to raise money. Looking across the chasm at this wealth of companies that uh, you know are just you know absolutely amazing sea of opportunity that, that we see as investors, and there's this gap of funding that we're not able to to, to access. And to, to define exactly where that is, the, the, the well, the government defined that as two to twenty million. I define that as um, probably um, two to a hundred. You know, two to two, two to four hundred. Because mm. the next step on the process is that we don't have an IPO ecology here, and, and you know a lot of this stuff would actually be solved if we invested you know a couple of million or then then another couple of million to a company, at, and let's say it got to be worth thirty million dollars. Given the size of our market, there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to have a mongrel uh, broker come to us and say, I want to take that company to the market, give it, give it to me, give it to me. You know, I've got the investors, I'll line them up and let's go raise $10 million into it and, and off you go. We should have a succession of those IPOing each year uh, that, because that's the sort of the nature of the market that we should be. We're, we're relatively small and we need that um, excitement. We're not seeing it. A few episodes ago in this podcast series, we talked to Suri and Edgar and he talked about the issues of IPOs, of there not being sufficient uh, transactions for the brokers to make money off the That's liquidity right. of the stock. So it's an illiquid stock, which is bad for the broker and bad for the investor. There's the, the lack of research where, because the research requires support of people trading in, the, in those stocks and, and other issues. And not just in New Zealand, also all around the world, albeit at different sure. sizes. And, and, and let me just go through. So we've been told the companies need to be and ourselves, at least 100, but probably more like 200 million for them yes. to get out of bed. Uh, We've, um, uh, you know, this analyst research uh, gap is a real problem. Uh, there is 
one company doing that uh, and uh, a little bit of it, but this, you know they're not. It's not really a lot of traction. We have a uh, most of the investors investors in stocks are old, mm. to be blunt. Um, mm. That's where the money is in society. You know, you, you generate wealth as you grow as you get older, and um, so you have a lot of um, boomers uh, holding money, and they don't really get tech. Um, and then perhaps uh, don't have the risk profile for it, although I'd argue they absolutely should have that because it's part of a diversified portfolio. Uh, the factor AML, CFT, uh, the uh, capital markets um, legislation, uh, these uh, have crippled the ability of brokers to advise their clients to invest in anything that they haven't researched and done work on the portfolio of their client. And that's been one of the real limiting factors for us. So we go to Syrian and say, hey, we'd, we'd love you to, to, to um, you know, shuffle this out through, throughout um, uh, the company. They, they pretty much say, well, I can give it to the individual brokers and they can you know, send it to clients, but we can't facilitate anything and we can't put our own money into it, that sort of stuff without our equities team getting across it. And then you look at the equities teams and they're generally recommending a handful of things, or maybe 16 stocks and perhaps a couple of things that they're aligned with. Right. So their own funds. So you, you have this ecosystem here, and it's a it's a oligopoly essentially, as we know. So that that uh, someone described to me a few years ago as fat and unhappy. Uh, <laughs> it's just not exciting anymore. Now, on the you know on the edges, we see things like sharesies and snowball effect, uh, and others that invest now. Uh, the Kiwi Bank one uh, as well uh, that are really breaking the paradigm of what. A investment manager uh, brokerage looks like, and I don't know if they are aware of the fact that they're the credible threat that are going to yeah, maybe even take them out over time. And, and, and they're unhappy because their commissions have collapsed yep. through te- technological disruption. Sure. Uh, yep. And on top of that is the the financial advisor legislation, which means that they they have to provide a FMCA. plethora yep. of. Mm-hmm. Advice before they actually uh, offer a stock, and that's just not scalable. And you, and you, you, yeah. you um, we were down at the Society of Independent Financial Advisors conference uh, this weekend, and you know they the, that's a dying industry. They are literally dying. They're old um, and getting older. They're not having young folks come through, and their whole world is one of compliance, and it's absolutely terrifying. Uh, it's played right into the hands of the big institutions. Who uh, who uh, just off, just offer their own products, uh, you know, take their own fees, and you know you, it's it's arguable that the FMCA has had a strongly negative effect on our investment ecosystem in New Zealand, and I, I understand MB is aware of this, um, but it's just hard. The AM anti money laundering's counter financial uh, financing and terrorism stuff, uh, CRS, uh, where you. In factor where you have to you know, give information to the IRD so they can give it to their counterparts overseas. All these things, we've, we've had to AML, uh, we've got 884 investors now, and we've had, we've had probably another 20 or 30 who have who've come in and gone out. Um, all of them made money. Uh, the, we've had to AML all of them or have someone do it for us. And that's non-trivial. It, it's, it's just extraordinary. You know, we're, we're not a money laundering risk. We... Uh, yeah, and maybe on the edges, one or two people might be, but people give us money for many, many years. <laughs> we, you know, so it's so, terrible. So, so oh, just just a, a side note here. Mm-hmm. I, I had a new client uh, come on board uh, about six weeks ago. 
we've only just, as of this morning, finished the AML right. process. And one of the, the, the shareholders in that company was overseas. Uh, right. So that, but, and people who don't do it just, I don't think, appreciate just what a disruption it is I'm, to I'm, the start of any new business relationship. Yeah, and I'm getting a good giggle out of the lawyers complaining about it. I've got to say, it's like you know, yeah, you, yeah. and real estate has to do it. And these are big, these have been big holes. And, that you and could I think the, Austra- the Australians yeah. are doing it much better than we are, much much more simply than are we are. I'm not quite yeah. sure why we are taking some. Anyway, the, well, the legislation says you should. Uh, when I re- first read it, you should create a risk uh, management program such that you, you AML. Someone, I do the checks on someone uh, to different extents depending on what their risk profile is, and that, and when I looked at that, so that's great. I mean, ninety nine percent of our investors are going to have a, a you know very benign risk profile, uh, and we'll just do this, you know tick the box and move on. And someone that's writing a very large check, uh, you know that's that's a little bit different, or they're foreign um, and writing a large check and so on. And then the uh, as far as I'm aware, the FMA came basically came back and said, no, you've got to do everything for everybody. Which just destroyed the whole purpose of of the of the thing. So we're going to have another go around at that, uh, and see if we can uh, simplify things. We had to AML Mike Bennett's, who's our chair, now, and and find out, you know, have him uh, verify his source of income. Yeah, and you can read the uh, financial statements and your reports of Z Energy, and you can see his income. <laughs> but we weren't allowed to to use that. It's, it's, these things are just ridiculous. They yeah. really are. Um, but let's just take it back to VC. Yeah. Part of our struggle with raising money for venture capital is that when you go to a financial advisor uh, or someone who's running other people's money, an AFA, that they cannot recommend venture capital uh, or this particular fund without doing a, a huge amount of work. And we don't go and raise that often. We, we raise maybe two or three times a year. Other venture capital funds may raise maybe two or three times a decade. And so you... If you're an investment advisor, it's more of it, it, that's not how you roll. You know, you should be investing money as you go, and it's relatively continuous. Uh, so it's just a it's a different asset class, um, which is a different way of behaving, and, uh, and it doesn't necessarily gel well with with uh, the way that the finance laws have been put in place in New Zealand and the ecosystem works. A major issue uh, that that I can see with the financial advisors is, as you say, they where they are asked to provide personalised advice to a retail investor. They do a lot of work to assess uh, what the investment goals are of the investor and then need to provide a essentially a diversified portfolio. Once you've got to that stage, the easiest diversified portfolio you can provide is a if they're working a KiwiSaver fund or, or some form of, of fund, uh, and, and that is most of New Zealand, whether they're using a financial advisor or not. And only the wealthier in New Zealand can afford to use a financial uh, advisor. And so, so then you get to, to, the, to the stage where um, if within those Kiwi savers, if only a few of them are looking at diversifying the portfolio to include alternative assets, and then of those who are going into alternative assets, only a few of them are looking at venture capital, then you're getting just a very small part of a tail of invest- investors in uh, New Zealand. It's, well, I take your point, it's broken. Yeah, let's talk about the Kiwi Savers for a bit, uh, or the funds as well in general. So uh, as far as I'm aware, there are there's only one fund that invests in venture capital, and that's Milford, 
uh, with their um, uh, Brook Bones uh, shop, their invests in uh, their investor in Vend and a few other things. But they've gone up market now. They, they write bigger checks, not very often. It's more private equity, and that is because the fund is so big. Mm. It's got to be a material investment for the for, for it to move the needle. Mm. Uh, so that's one of the issues that when funds are very very big, they, they need to be writing large checks. So super fund, you know, won't won't wake up for less than 150 million dollars mm. as they, they shouldn't, right? Uh, and we can, you know, we can take it. We can spend that money, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's. But we're only a fifty million dollar fund at the moment, and they look at us and say, "Well, we'll, we'll maybe not now. I'll, look, I'll go overseas or something." They don't like the asset class at all, anyway. The simplicity deal with Ice Angels, uh, that's a, that they they're committing a a small percentage of their growth fund to that over ten years, subject to lots of things. Uh, that's angel funding. Uh, highly speculative. Uh, Booster is doing the same down in Wellington with um, uh, Viclink. They're investing in a range of uh, even earlier stage investments which are coming out of uh, commercialization out of Victoria University. Super highly spe- uh, speculative. Uh, Booster's also got a private equity fund going on where they're investing in, in um, vineyards and that sort of stuff, mm. uh, which is you know much less likely to, um, to go, go south. Um, but there is a gap in, when, when, the, when you look at the funds. Uh, we've got one regional trust invested in us. Uh, Movex got um, NZ Super and uh, and Natahu invested in, in them. Uh, I'm not sure what's in GD1 or whether he's got any funds in there at all. I suspect not. And that's it. Mm. Uh, so there is this tremendous gap. A lot of the Kiwi Saver funds didn't want to invest into anything that was a liquid because they have this. You know, they have to be able to sell down. Um, mm. And yes. it's extraordinary when you look at that. You've got money coming in every month, uh, and you're worried about liquidity. Uh, don't even get me started on ACC, who you know for some reason think that they have to plan out 15 years worth of uh, worth of uh, bond returns when you know they could have 15 years worth of equity returns, um, and and so yeah, it is a bit broken. Uh, you can lead a horse to water, and uh, it's very difficult to help them see the light. And all we can do from our side is show the returns. To so show the returns that that are high, that you know smash the returns that the earlier VC funds did. Uh, show the the great companies that are coming through, uh, and and how they're growing. We talk about our combined revenue a lot. It's 128 million right now. Um, show the increase in um, w- we've increased our share price from 10 to 23 dollars, uh, you know, o- over time, um, and that's all we can do. And a lot of that is waiting. This is a long term game, so you're making an investment. Um, the way, actually, to, to be a bit facetious, you're making an investment, uh, and then uh, and that, and you have a little honeymoon phase, and then all of a sudden everything goes pear shaped, um, <laughs> and often that's because you know they've taken on money, they're hiring people, and it's just hard, or right. they've spent the last six months trying to raise money, and so they've they've, they've taken the eye off the ball, uh, and then uh, and then things get back on track, and things grow really well, and um, uh, but even then it takes several years to manifest the value. Um, and then to show the value externally through an IPO or a trade sale or something, that's 10, 15 years to do it well. And, and you can't show that to investors too early, right? You don't want to overvalue them. So, so, so yeah. let's give the uh, investors a, a little bit of um, wriggle room here. Talk about when they see early stage 
friends and family, seed, whatever you wish to call it, and how the risk starts high, even though there's maybe no revenue and, and certainly no earnings, and how um, that changes as they as they mature. When the as the risk reduces, the the uh, value of the company increases. You're right, and so uh, yeah. So at, at that very early stage, it's it's speculation, it's gambling, it's angel investing, um, it, it's uh, friends and family because uh, you, you're missing the last F, which is fools, friends, family, and fools, uh, and uh, and you're doing it. Uh, you know, Gareth Morgan gave his son a bunch of cash uh, for trade me um, because it was the right thing to do. Not because he, he necessarily thought it was a great investment, uh, because you know it was the right thing to do, and and that's what friends and family money is. I, I know my son, I know my daughter, you know, I, I'm I'm going to back them. That's what I do. Yes. And if they lose the thing, then I'll probably you know help them get on their feet again. And um, I don't have a son and daughter that old, so you know. Um, but that that's that's completely um, uh, it's speculation. And the other thing about it, it's fun. It is gambling. It's like, and like gambling, it's really fun. So let me tell you about this great company. It, it, it sings, it dances, it does this, it does that. There's a little bit of uh, uh, perpetual motion in there too. It's amazing. And yeah, you hand over the money. And I know of one company that raised $20 million recently um, you know, on the back of what I can't see as, as anything real. Yeah. And, uh, and others may, may, may challenge that. Uh, but you know the investors, you know they were told this this is this is very early stage, and and so when they lose their money, if they lose their money, then um, then so be it. But it was very exciting for a while, and it's hard to compete where, where we are. A bit later on, we say you've got to be a minimum size. It's got to be a, essentially a viable company, uh, and we're applying growth capital to it. Now that's a much easier way not to lose your money. <clears throat> much easier. Where we've stuffed up is when we've invested too early or in the wrong sector. Um, but when we stick to our knitting of technology at a, at a certain stage and later, we've done very, very well. Thank you very much. Um, it's not nearly as sizzly. Um, it's uh, not nearly as, um, you know, you're not nearly as influenced by a founder who's on stage speaking eloquently. Uh, you are influenced by um, more mechanical things. We're also glass half empty, though. So we look at investors. You know, we, we, we're okay with the glass half empty. We're looking for the bit that's good and, and you're backfilling Right. on the bad stuff. Um, so, yeah, still pretty early stage, uh, that's for sure. Uh, and But your IRRs are going to be lower. Mm. So when you're an angel investor or a speculative high-risk capital VC investor, you're looking for that 1 in 10, 1 in 20 uh, win, right? Uh, when you're a, a later stage investor, and New Zealand is weird because the numbers are so small like us, uh, then we're looking for um, 25, 20%, 30% IRRs, which is still very, very high, and you know, obviously way higher than anything you'd see long term from a, from a market. Uh, but these are not completely unreasonable, uh, and we're looking for the portfolio to win. We're not I mean, obviously we'd love to see breakout winners, and there's always one or two that you think could just go. Uh, but we are looking for most of that portfolio to perform very, very well. So it's not as sexy, not as fun. Um, uh, but uh, but much a much safer place to put your money. You're, you're late late stage venture capital, yeah. anyways, as I, as I understand it. Early, so forget about seed, we're, we're, but early stage. Yeah, we're very early stage venture capital. Right. That, so we'd be a micro VC if we we're in the states. Right. That's what we. And it seems like there are some portfolios where you, where you would expect, sure, one or two to do extremely well. I mean, not not just ten x, but possibly even fifty or hundred x if there are zero. And and then there are many that will just be a one x return. So you you put in hundred dollars of cash, you get a hundred bucks back, one x return. And and then there are um, 
many VC funds, and I, I'm not sure about New Zealand, but many VC funds, they expect some failures. They Maybe not, it's not a zero X, it's not a complete loss of money, it's only a return of, of half. But overall, that portfolio and that fund hits a, a sufficiently good IRR. Now, listening to you, you, you you're not... Uh, aiming at that at all, you you don't want any of yours to 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 fail. You expect all of them to do a to do reasonably well. Well, so we we, we never invest with the intention of um, of losing money, but uh, we have written five companies right down. We've sold one, um, and uh, we've got fourteen uh, ones that are doing 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 pretty well. But the five that we've written down were um, either out of mandate or too small, so we kind of. We're playing in the wrong space. Right. Um, we invested only one or two big mistakes in there. Uh, what what I would say is, we you're not wrong in your assessment of how it works. That so you are looking for the breakouts. So we've had, you know, we've got a couple of over thirty five percent IRRs and one I think up near sixty percent IRR. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some uh, there's some pretty good ones uh, that we see in the future that could really go bang as well. So we are looking for those things. There's no question about it. Uh, but I keep going back. Uh, so you talk about a hundred times. That's probably the way I think of it more than an IRR. So uh, I keep going back to Trade Me. Uh, it was sold for seven hundred plus fifty million back in two thousand and six. But if all those investors had not sold and then they'd sold to the buyer this year uh, and they'd taken all the dividends, they would have taken out three point seven billion. Golly, golly. Uh, so you you look at that and you say, don't sell, hold. As long as a company is growing and going well. Hold and keep holding, um, and sooner or later the market will uh, will get a bit silly, and and off you go. So, so to go back to the, the the investor, I start to have a little bit of sympathy for uh, the F, the FMA when they say, look, we've got to be careful about what sort of investors invest in this space. Uh, they, they need to know that a part of the portfolio for a generic VC fund, not necessarily Pinnacle, um, will, will fail, and you need to be comfortable with that failure because overall the IRR on that fund will be much higher because it needs to be given the, the risk levels. Yeah, I think there's, there's, there's two main issues with VC, or traditional VC. The one is that um, you could lose all your money. The second one is that uh, the traditional VCs draw the money down. So you make a commitment of, say, a million bucks, and they draw it down over five years as they make each deal. Um, and most people don't, or retailers may not have that liquidity uh, or to be able to guarantee that. The third thing is, and I'd, I'd take a step up, if you're investing in venture capital, only the top 10 to 20% of funds really do well. Most of them are, are okay or lousy, like negative returns. Yeah. And, and that's what happened in New Zealand. You know, they're all lousy um, if you, on, in aggregate. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and only one was great, and that was you know, Peter Thiel's shop. Uh, so it's a very tough asset class for the general managers, the general partners, because we've got a, you know, we're really hands-on with investing and, and working on the companies and so on, uh, and it can be a tough asset class for the investors. It is a liquid for many, many years, and uh, it's, quite, uh, it's quite a tough... Um, we've had investors um, trying to get money out very early sometimes. So let me talk about us, because we, we've changed the game a little bit. Sure. We do retail offers. Yes, FMA-regulated product disclosure statements. We've done, I think, five now. We did a crowdfunding offer as well. We have 884 investors after we closed this particular round we're in today, uh, which is all but done. Uh, we have investors who, have, who hold 
$300 with the shares, all the way up to, you know, between one and two million uh, with the shares. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, we do tell them this is a very long-term investment. Uh, we do report very, we think, you know, pretty well on, on, on how it's all going. But we have had a lot of people say, I want to sell my shares because generally because of personal circumstances. The first person that asked to do that, that you know, had a divorce, a sudden divorce. And, right. And, uh, and so we've, now we facilitate share trading opportunities every quarter or so and people sell and buy shares. The last time we had 54 buyers or so um, and five sellers hmm. uh, of, the, of the shares. So and, and our intention is to list the whole fund so that there's liquidity on, on the market. Sure. Once we get to two hundred million or whatever, sure. so so that that has changed the game so that we've made venture capital approachable for retail investors, which has been quite interesting. Uh, in in when we're out there in the market talking to both retail investors and and the funds as to how they think about it, there's, there's a level of excitement about the our ability to IPO and our intention to do so, uh, and also a level of um, uh, skepticism around the discount to NAV and uh, and the the, the way that we um, uh, value, value things. Yeah. Being net asset value. That's right, yeah. So the value of all the assets in the fund uh, and sure. net of, net of con, um, you know, uh, contingency fees and that sort of stuff. Uh, we, uh, what we do say back is there's no other VC fund around that will let you get out at all. You can always get out of us, albeit at a discount. But you we, can we, always get out. We should quickly describe a traditional VC. Uh, sure, you have a general partner uh, who is the manager of the fund, and it's uh, you know two or three or four people at the beginning, um, putting their own money into this, hiring a few analysts. But they're relatively small shops, so um, and 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 they go out and raise a fund uh, from limited partners, and there's special law for this. And limited partners are. Um, they, they commit, as I said before, say a million bucks, and it's drawn down over the course of the, the life of the fund. Uh, the limited partners are not allowed to tell the general partners what to do. That's part of the law. But in return, they get um, they get the tax um, is not taken out. It's, it's just flow. All the money flows back to them, and they can deal with their own tax issues. And the advantage of that is, is there's a J-curve that you get lots of losses up front, and so they, they get a tax advantage early on, even though they pay taxes later on? I'm not, I'm not a tax advisor. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to give tax advice, um, but, you know, I imagine so. Uh, the, the, uh, the other thing is, you know, they committed a million bucks, but they, they don't have to pay it in, uh, until later. So that's, it's easier when you go out to raise, hey, can you give me 10 grand later? It feels easier than saying, can you right. give me 10 grand today? Right. Uh, the, and then the, and the partners go off and start making investments. Now, along the way, they get paid 2% and this is the industry standard, it can vary a little bit, 2% of the fund's under management. So let's say it's a $100 million fund, they get $2 million a year. Um, and uh, and then they, maybe for five years, but often for 10. Uh, so you can take $10 million out of that um, for the first five years and maybe another 10 for the next five years. And so that's, you've only got $80 million to invest now. And then they invest that money. They'll generally keep a bit aside for follow-on investments. Um, and, uh, and then they'll essentially work on the company's weight. And then when they sell, they get 20% of the upside. And there's different ways of calculating that, but generally there might be a hurdle. Uh, there might be across the whole portfolio on a deal-by-deal basis if you're really good. Um, and, uh, and essentially that's where you make your money. Your fees should pay for your shop and you make the money. And let's talk about the economics for a second. Um, $100 million fund you know, generates $2 million a year. But if Superfund had got into you and nickel and dimed you, as they've done in New Zealand, 
um, then maybe you're only getting you know 1.5 or something million a year. Now 1.5 million a year doesn't pay for many finance professionals, yeah. right? It, it really doesn't. You've yeah. got an office, you've got flying around, you've got you know you, you've, you've you've got to get a team so that you can. Um, you know, manage the deal flow, get out there and, and shake the trees, get into the ecosystem, uh, and uh, and then you know do your own internal, internal analysis, manage all your investors, uh, and then you know get onto the company's boards, help them out, um, you know find people for them. There's a whole bunch. This is really hard work. The economics don't work if you're a hundred million dollar fund, let alone a fifty million dollar fund like us. You've actually got to be a three hundred million dollar fund for the numbers to start working. So how do you cheat? Well, there's two ways. You can you can pay yourself a lot more money, and uh, you know increase your fees as a result, or internalize it and, and pay yourself a lot. And essentially, this is what Powerhouse did, uh, which is a whole other debacle. Um, and they were paying themselves uh, from memory. They, they, was, they said they were worth twenty million dollars, and they were paying themselves five. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were spending five million bucks a year. They, it was it was amazing. Um, or you, um, you you do it the Kiwi way where you just get completely frugal, um, you know, pay yourselves very little money, uh, get people who are earlier career who really want to work in VC, you know, look to look to give them some upside uh, and, uh, and just, you know, put your heads down and work. Chris and I were two people until, really until March last year. Uh, we had an intern and, and then we found someone else. Um, and it was, it, it was, we hit the wall to be honest. It was just, it's really hard work. So now we are uh, five or six people. We just tied someone again, um, and uh, you know things are a lot easier for us. So that's the the GPLP structure is very well established. That's the, the these are the it's the same structure that works for hedge funds and pr- private equity funds, uh, and uh, and the reason it exists, I mean the the more modern reason it exists is the is a hedge fund law in the United States, uh, which was created to create this tax advantage, and it's one of the big issues in the world right now is that you have um, these you know, ultra-high net worths and these funds putting money into private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, um, and essentially avoiding tax. Uh, and uh, and that's got societal implications that are, yeah. uh, because it's just gone a bit crazy. Um, and, and that's uh, it's not necessarily a good thing. Okay, so that's the, the, the structure of a tradi- traditional VC. Mm. What's what's your structure? We're the same. We're just two companies. The manager's a company. The funder's a company. Sure. We have a two and twenty approach as well. Sure. Uh, we, but we are twenty percent upside. What we've said is that we're going to do it based on the, the what the investor gets, not on what you know, at, which is essentially what price were the shares issued at, and what price are the shares um, trading at uh, after we IPO. Right. And so, and we'll get paid. Only well after we IPO too, because we'll, when we IPO, we'll, we we don't want to take the pop and then yeah, get yeah. underwater. So we'll, yeah. we'll wait a few months, um, and we will, um, but we will get paid in shares as well, so and get escrowed with some tax, cash for tax. Uh, so that so we've set it up in a way that it incentivizes us to be very long term managers, and for the investors to be long term investors, uh, and for the founders, um, the conversations we have with them are very long term conversations as well. We're not looking for a quick exit. Is that structure yeah. unusual? I, yes. I, I can't say I've heard of well, it we're, we're, We are a listed investment fund in waiting, company in waiting, an LIC. So it's not, oh. if you look at those, there's a lot of real estate um, uh, listed investment companies. There's uh, uh, David uh, Kirk's Ballador in, in Australia is one of these. Uh, Infratil is basically the same. Uh, although their, uh, their fees are pretty aggressive this year. Uh, yeah, there were there's there's a few here and there, 
uh, that do this. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. A, a VC by by practice, but an entity that's an that's an LIC in, in, in yeah. Washington. Yeah, well. And essentially, that's what what Pinnacle Fund is. It's a, it's a company that owns you know fifty million odd worth of investments in you know principally fourteen high growth companies. Uh, and if you know those companies, then you know you, you may have some insight about the value of of those companies and and what we are. And we try to provide as much as we can. As we raise more money, we invest in those companies and in new companies, uh, and uh, and and we keep revaluing them every quarter and showing people the progress. But that's all we are. It's quite simple. Lance, you mentioned before a um, it's a, a what I call a power law curve of returns and venture capital. So, mm. and, and this is the US. Hopeless talking about it even in Australia, much less New Zealand, because there are a lack of uh, in terms of example, there's a lack of um, sufficient venture capitals capital firms and funds that have matured to, to really do proper statistical analysis. But if you look in, in the US, there's a, a small number of firms that have done spectacularly well and a longer tail of firms that have done um, not, so, not so well, well, certainly not as well as are required for the, the, the risk class of the asset. Why do you have a short, that, that power curve? What's well, going on there? Well, it, and the other thing about that is that you can't get into those top funds, right? So yeah. I went to Yale, and, and the Yale Investment Office uh, was one of the first um, big foundations to get into venture capital, and they went in a big way, and they've got relationships yeah. with all of the uh, uh, great uh, venture capitalists. Uh, and What's the fellow's name, Andrew? Um, Yale Investment Office, Dave Swenson. Yeah, Dave, yeah, yeah, Dave so, yeah, yeah, was, yeah. Uh, He's a professor. Um, he put me into my summer job, too, in a, in a um, private equity firm. Famous. Famous um, fellow. Wow. Yeah, he's, oh. he's, he's amazing. He's... Um, very nice man, uh, very thoughtful, um, ha, ha, you know, and, and has very good relationships with all, all these um, companies that they've invested into. So, so and, just quickly and, on him, so mm-hmm. Yale was invested in, in, in bonds, and then oh, he arrived in, what, and, 1980 or something? Changed the whole game. And, and he said, we've got long-term, uh, yep. we need to get long-term returns, let's yep. look at venture capital and private equity, and yep. changed non, non-profit foundations forever after he proved the, the That's right. Of that. And he's written a book called Institutional Funds Management, and, and there's another one um, called something similar, which is saying more personal investment. Highly recommend those books. Uh, he's, uh, if you look at their portfolio, it's 50% in illiquid. Uh, it's, uh, I think, 4% in US equities and maybe 15% or 10% in equities per se. Huh. And what terrifies me is that NZ Super's 71% in equities. Huh. And you know, what are, what are, what, they've got the very similar mandates. Uh, grow the thing for a long-term intergenerational wealth and so on. And I, I really struggle. But the issue is that because you know Dave's been there for so many years and, and, and the team has been there for so many years, they have relationships with the very, very best of, um, of the funds right. and they just keep getting rolled into the next one. Yeah. And you know, you'd, there was one fund I was reading about the other day and they only take not-for-profit money. They don't take for-profit money, right? Because so, they don't pay taxes, so I, they don't I, need to. Maybe I don't know, but yeah, yeah. it was. Be, yeah, and uh, and so and so that's one side of the equation. They get the best funders, and and these very large, these really really big inner town ones, they'll open up for a week. So okay, we're raising another you know half billion dollars. You know, um, you, I've got you down for fifty. Yeah, <laughs> um, you got you got you know. Tell me tomorrow, and 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 they can, and they can change their fees up as well. Now, the flip side of that is that the companies that are being invested in, you know, who do you want to take your money from? Sequoia or Punakaki Fund? 
It's not even close. Yeah, if if you can get Sequoia or Anderson Horowitz or or whomever to give you cash, it 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 sort of it puts a rubber stamp on your forehead, which means you're more likely to win. They've they anoint the champions, and so there are two companies both got the same investment. One from a, a big you know famous firm, the other one from a not so. The the one from the big famous firm is more likely to get customers, is more likely to have people want to work for them. And so on, uh, and so there's this kind of cycle, yeah. um, and they, they get all the all the great companies will go and see the, the greatest firms. So one way to play is you, you get your money into them, but if you're NZ Super, for example, you can't you don't get a look in. The other way to play is that you um, is that you invest in first time or second time funds. So these are the other ones that can make good money, often don't. But if you find the right fund manager, um, then then um, they can make they're the ones that make the highest returns as far as I understand because they're, sure. they're getting in much earlier in the investment process um, and finding the goodies and off you go but yeah who who can pick those people mm-hmm. what we say is that it's time and place so right now in New Zealand and to an extent in Australia but in New Zealand we have um, this huge you know wealth of uh, of companies coming through and, and this lack of capital so we're kind of fish in a barrel stage where yes. you know, even if you're not that great um, and, and we're all learning, uh, you can do very, very well because yes. of the ecosystem. In Australia, they realised that they've raised over $5 billion of venture capital money in the last few years. And now they're, they're starting to come over Of course they are. They're, they're, they've got too much venture capital money over there now, so yeah. they're coming over here. Yeah. And the, you know the, where we started was the government uh, venture capital fund of funds. The annoying thing is, is that our government is going to be giving them more money yeah. Uh, to come over here when they're yeah. already they're already shopping here anyway, yeah. um, and and it's great to have them. Uh, I just don't think we should necessarily need to spend our taxpayers' money on uh, yeah. on on, on uh, helping them too much. There's a we, let's not go down this rabbit hole, but there is a creating superannuation, which in effect takes New Zealand's um, savings and puts them overseas into foreign right. stock markets, uh, foreign bond markets, foreign alternative assets, rather than uh, providing parameters to ensure this, they stay. Well, let's be clear, though. You, you, you know, we sh- we should put that money into a globally well diversified portfolio of, of you know different asset classes across different sectors. Uh, at the same time, I always say to people, do that with your money, but cheat. You know, if you know something that other, that Wall Street doesn't, you know, put your money there as well. We know, for example, we knew about zero before anyone else. Yes. You know, in New Zealand, yeah. and so a lot of people have made a lot of money out of zero. Um, you know, you know that there's an ecosystem here that's doing you know, amazingly well that you can kind of cheat. Wall Street doesn't know about us and will never will, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that's that's what I think the folks like ACC and Superfund should be doing. Is uh, and and other other sovereign wealth funds do have a mandate to help the country as well, but our one doesn't. It just has an investment mandate. So you you know they, they don't get out of bed and say we're here to save New Zealand or to reduce emissions, they get out of bed and say we're here to make money, and that's their mandate, and it's quite unfortunate. It's a chicken and a, chicken and egg thing, isn't it? You, mm-hmm. If you don't have the mandate, you don't create the high quality managers with sufficient funds, um, and exactly. therefore you don't have the high quality sufficient managers uh, to provide mandates to. It's, it's, and, cycles around. And then if you look at someone like Superfund and you compare that to the Yale Investment Office, the Yale Investment Office is, a, is in a house. But basically, it's it's an old house, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was when I was there, and it's a relatively small uh, shop, twenty people, 
Superfund has goodness knows how many people. Uh, you know, it's a bit bigger than Yale, but not much. Uh, and and you can imagine the amount of work and pain and effort required to get anything done on Superfund uh, in terms of new investment asset classes and, and all that sort of stuff. And they are a government-owned fund. They do need to be uh, they need to have that level of bureaucracy. But you can imagine it will be very difficult for them to get anything away uh, like this, especially when the checks are so small. Hence, they've been made to do it by creating a new vehicle that sits alongside the Superfund, which is this fund of funds. Right. Uh, but they're not even going to run that. That's going to be run by NZVIF. Yes. And that shop has um, all sorts of conflicts involved um, and, and other things like that. So it's yeah. going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But fundamentally what we're talking about here is how do you, you, know, how do you get the, I guess, crank start. The, the, I shouldn't use that word these days. You know, that phrase, it's more a, how do you... Um, how do you uh, flywheel. Charge. I like flywheel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you get it going and uh, to show the returns so that, that other investors come in? We've already been going five years. We're already showing the returns. Yes. Um, it hasn't helped that the property market's so good and that the, the uh, stock market's had a 12 year bull run. Um, but let's see how everyone's looking in, uh, in a few years' time. Mm-hmm. Let's talk more about the Punakaiki Fund. Uh, you calculate, it seems, every quarter the, the value of the companies that you invest in. Uh, and come up with a net asset value based off that, remove some um, fees, including a, I assume it's a hypothetical performance fee um, based off the estimated carry you get uh, post-IPO. Uh, it, it's kind of recursive, actually, and, and yeah. it, it, I keep going back and saying we shouldn't have to do this, but the accountants are, are, are quite adamant. So uh-huh. we, we calculate the asset value. Uh, we subtract from that... Uh, the you know, money that we owe, uh, uh, you know, that, which is relatively small, but then we subtract from that the performance fee, uh, which is twenty percent of the upside between you know, what we've um, two and twenty, sure. Yeah, and that and the upside is based on the share price, so it's based on the all the different share prices when investors shares in the INAF per share today, or the net asset value per share today. But it's kind of recursive because you know the more the performance fee is, the 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 uh, you know the, the INAF drops. Um, and so, therefore, the investors get less. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we take it off the the, the net asset value before the fee, and uh, and and there you have it. And it's just, it's really just a way to say, well, that's the discount. You know, after you know, that, that's to that's to cope with the shares that will be issued and so on. As long as we're consistent, that's all I care about. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, because when we, the actual discount will be after we list. You know, we can tell what that number is every day because there's a um, there's a share price, yeah. and, the, and the the investors will tell us what our performance fee is going to be, not not our own calculations. Sure. Um, but it's just a contingency. So that INAF per share is um, we have to call it the INAF because we pay ourselves in equity as well as a little bit of cash for that performance fee, and it's on different parts of the balance sheet. So right. otherwise, it'll just be a NAV. Um, it's a long term liability. There's no need to pay that any anytime soon anyway. Yeah. Uh, so we. The next question is probably going to be, how do you do that? How do you value that stuff? Not, not only how you value it, but wouldn't it have been simpler just to go, I'll get some normal LPs and create a normal VC? We, there's a, a social element here of democratising retail investment into an alternative asset. I, I love that, but we, from a personal point of view, boy, there's a lot of effort. If we were going, going to do it again today, given the reputation we've now built, yes, yeah. no question. Uh, however, we've made our bet. 
Yes. We've got a fund. It's, you know, 50, $53 million worth. Um, uh, we have a lot of very um, good, smart, uh, well-dressed, good-looking investors um, who, who are, by and large, pretty happy. Um, and, uh, you know, if we stop now, we're not going to get to IPO and, and all that sort yes. of stuff. And we've actually, we believe we're onto something quite unusual and, and good. Yeah. Uh, Back in the day, six years ago, when we tried to raise money, we didn't know anyone who we we couldn't get it together to to, to do this to do a GPLP structure. Uh, the the big thing about that is, um, you know, if you're trying to raise a fund, it takes at least a year, if not more, of running around talking to investors, trying to build up critical mass to start your first fund. And we've already talked about the lack of VC capital in New exactly. Zealand, so you're hiding to nothing. Largely sure. it's high net worth families um, that, are, that are backing them, and, and good on them. Yeah. Uh, and it's just brutally hard work. And we looked at that and said, well, we don't really want to go and do that when there's a very, very high chance of failure. Mm. Uh, and we, we just didn't believe that we could get it away, to be honest, because I, I had no connections into that ecosystem at all. Uh, I, my connections were from the tech and ecosystem and the companies. Sure. Uh, so we we did the retail offer, failed um, a, a retail offer, the prospectus failed, and then we went out and we raised $1.5 million in our first go-round. Now, you're not going to create a GPLP structure for $1.5 million, um, and we just keep building into that, and off we've gone. Sure, it might be different now, but you know we've had a lot of money from retail investors too, and it's, it's, it's really neat to be able to offer them that that, that investment. However, accounting law and regulations and auditors tell us and tell venture capital firms that you must value your portfolio using fair value each year. They are actually subject to the same rules that we're subject to. Now, we issue tier one, IFRS tier one accounts, right? The same as any listed company, the same level. We use you know, Deloitte as our uh, accountants and EYs or auditors. You know, we don't we don't get a pass on anything. Um, we have to do um, a lot of rigorous work to uh, you know do our valuations and to prove to them you know that 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 that, that process is, is solid. Uh, and and I would argue that the other venture capital firms have to do the same. And I'd also argue that they they obviously are not. Um, they don't have to, for, as far as the investors are concerned, do the Absolutely same because not. it doesn't matter as much. Yeah. Um, we always thought that we would carry the, the companies on the books at par value, at investment value, until such time as there was another <laughs> round. We never thought we'd have to do this evaluation stuff. We're just a gobsmack, to be honest, when the accountants came back and said, no, you, you, you've got to revalue these things. And we just, we, I couldn't believe it. Um, and, you know, and turn into a bit of a monster. But now we're really good at it. So we can pop out a valuation, um, you know, very very quickly because we know we, we track all the uh, mainly the revenues from the companies. Uh, so the software as a service company in particular, you track the revenues, the recurring revenues, and use multiples. Um, and there's ways to find those multiples. We use a series of discounts depending on the age and stage and and, and all different parameters about the companies. And you know, often that's like fifty percent discount from market. We cap the market caps of um, the market ratios. When we're looking at the listed stocks, that's where we start. We cap those ratios if it's really frothy, which it is, sure. um, and then we discount them. Uh, we uh, for companies like Onset and Divoli and Coherent Solutions, which are more on an annual cycle, we only value them once a year, uh, and we wait for the year-end accounts before we do that. Wait for them to settle a bit. Uh, for companies uh, like, um, uh, say, Conquer or Vend or Red Seed or Timely, uh, uh, these are. 
you know, more rapidly growing, software as a service companies, relatively easy to value. We might revalue them, you know, two or three times a year, once or twice a year, depending on how, um, and we have a buffer, you, you don't get revalued unless you're more than 1% of the portfolio sure. um, when, the, when you're revalued. We, we, um, it depends on how fast they're growing and all that sort of other stuff. If someone else invests in the company or they'll sell some shares or something like that, then we have to use that to calibrate our own investment as well, our, our own valuations too. It is painful, but we're pretty good at it now. Um, and uh, and uh, I would, I do want to publish our, our processes, but we just haven't got there. I'd be very, very interested. Uh, yeah, it's uh, IP as well. To be fair, yeah. like if, we, if we tell everyone how we value companies, and we're going to have companies walk in the door and say, "Well, our pre-money valuation is your valuation minus a buck." <laughs> so, you know, so, <laughs> no, 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 fair, fair enough. Oh, yeah, and, and, and I praise the value of companies, and, and there can be such a range that being forced to do that by accountants because of accounting standards would um, drive me a little nuts, knowing that you're. you're Within a, range, a wide range, not a narrow range, and people yep. can argue the, the higher the low value and, and be quite right either way. Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. One is that accountants, so the accountants say you must do this, and, and we've had a very good relationship with the, um, I guess, the financial reporting auditing account, account folks. Uh, the valuation folks inside accounting firms are not the folks that you would get to value a software as a service company that's super high growth. So this is the whole industry that missed zero, for example. Yes. Um, even though, you know, if you look at the analyst reports in New Zealand, you know, when did they start tracking zero? It was pretty late. Uh, so, so we've always uh, struggled with, with that um, and, you know, to help educate them as to how the industry values these things. Um, and, uh, uh, and so that, that's sort of one runner and you have which lets me ask this question. You also have a rights issue. Yes. I, I, I need, need to finish that one off. And then after that, let's, let's talk a bit, bit about you. Uh, tell me about the rights issue. You... So we surveyed our investors. Right? Yeah. So we, yeah. we, you know, we, we're always looking for, um, we, you know, we want to raise money because we just swamped with opportunities. And we went out to our investors and I had the idea that if we can change our, our you know, make it round and change our model so that people can give us money over time. Because I was talking to a few very large uh. investors. And so can we emulate the GPLP model where to say, hey, give us, you know, sign up for a million bucks and pay us when we draw it down. Yes. Can, let's go off and do a round like that. And then we could also do just a standard round where we do, you know, raise at the, at the standard price of INAV. Or we could do a round where we... Um, uh, we, we constrain it, make it very small, just pay our fees, keep our heads down, keep going, wait for the companies to keep building in value. Or we could do a rights issue, uh, which we did in March 2017, um, and uh, or we could do something else, whatever it was. And I sp- we've got eight, you know, 800-odd investors, so we just surveyed them. Mm. We do this a lot, just send them a survey monkey survey, yeah. tell us what you think. Yeah. And uh, I was stunned to when they came back uh, and the, over- the results were overwhelming, rights issue like the people not just wanted it more but they'd pull out money and invest in it and uh and and i was a bit annoyed to be honest because i had my i had my little favorite but you know the the numbers don't lie and so that's sure. basically the the thesis was give us uh reward us for our investment huh. yeah, we've been in here you know give us some value yeah. so you know the people that suffer are really uh, it's the manager um, and me personally, because I have more shares than I could finance um, sure. in, in the rights issue. Sure. Uh, but, but otherwise, you know, we had a, it was an amazing response. 
And so we, we, uh, we then went out again to them, and we work with the board on this, and the board is um, you know, very much in control of, of these, these things. Uh, and, we, um, and we said, well, you know, it could be a one for five, or one for 10, it could be this, it could be that, you know, and threw around a few permutations. And again, we got feedback from that, and we kind of did some, some numbers on that and to decide is it, a, is it a one for five, or a one for 10, or a one for 15, and we end up with one for seven. Uh, which was yeah. uh, balanced between one for five, which was seen as a bit too aggressive, um, and uh, and one for ten, which was seen as you know not aggressive enough, I guess. And boy, we just finished um, on yesterday uh, uh, and uh, mo- on Monday afternoon, and we got twenty thousand dollars or thirty thousand dollars over uh, the uh, the cap. <laughs> so then, then, then. eight people got crammed down. That was it. It was amazing. That, 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 that date is 25 November 2019, uh, the date that... That was Monday, yeah, yeah that's Monday, right. Yes. Yeah. So now the, the, we're, in the, we're in phase three. So phase one was a, um, a $23 share issued to new investors. Huh. We got 750k out of that, which was um, probably a little bit below par. Uh, the phase two was the, uh, the rights issue where people could subscribe to their own entitlements and then ask for, for, for more. Uh, and now, and now we're in phase three, which is we've told everyone how much of the more shares they've got, and they and they're paying for them. Uh, so that I'm just I'm getting notifications as we're talking about money coming into the bank account, uh, and uh, that closes on Monday next week, Monday the second of December. And at that stage, um, hopefully everyone's paid, and we just issue the shares. But if not, and we had this last time, um, you know, sometimes people are overseas, and the money takes a while to get here sure. or something. Then we um, we we drop them out. Uh, so yeah, it's a really good, fun way to raise money because you, everyone participates. We've had yeah. 591 people participate in this offer out of a out of what's it 800 884 now. Yeah, <sighs> it's just fun. I mean, it, you know, we've had people put in 16 dollars; they got one right, uh, all the way up to you know <laughs> several hundred thousand. So. Yeah, it's really fun to, to, to watch people and talk to people. And yeah, on the edges, you have a few people who have been in for a long time in particular, like me, um, don't have much cash, you know, I'm all in, and, and, and say, look, I don't I like the dilution. Um, and, you know, we, we, we take the point and we, we discuss that at the board a lot, um, but the other side of it was just overwhelming. Uh, so there you have it. Thank you for all the time you've you've um, uh, given this, this this episode. That I think this will be a uh, extremely interesting one and, and and much appreciated. Let's talk a bit about about you. you the the Yale University is is uh, very interesting. They, they've got some famous finance people there, not the least being Robert uh, Schiller, uh, the um, Nobel laureate, uh, behavioural econom- uh, economist, and as we were saying, uh, David Swinston. Swinston. Swinston, yep. person who perhaps changed uh, portfolio management forever. How did you get into uh, Yale? What were you doing before Yale? Well, I, I bribed my way uh, onto the sports team. No way. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I mean, it, I, when I was at school here in New Zealand, you know, going to Yale wasn't or Harvard or wherever wasn't a thing, right? You just that was just a ridiculous dream. Uh, I did the technology degree at Massey in product development, uh, so it's industrial engineering and, and, yeah. and marketing and finance and product development, uh, and then I went to um, mobile. And sold uh, gasoline, FPOS, and uh, and then uh, I was on I was in Nelson, uh, being the retail uh, territory manager rep for um, Nelson Marble West Coast South Canterbury, 
Uh, and so there was sort of four, year, four years. I, I did a stint in Australia with Mobile doing a big FPOS project across Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so it was a really interesting uh, set of experiences with Mobile. Then went to the UK and did my, um, did, did my OE. On the way there, I did a, a music company startup in Montreal. There's a few things wrong with that. Music, um, uh, Montreal. Um, being the two of them, um, and uh, but that was it was a it was, it was a thing for the homeless as well. So there's, there's a it turned out that, that was quite a valuable thing I think yeah. when applying to business school. So I didn't mean it that way. Went to London, landed at um, CSFP and then EBRD um, Credit Suisse Financial Products as a temp, and then EBRD European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. It's like the World Bank looked at Eastern Europe, yeah. and landed in a very central position there, um, uh, and, and essentially being. Um, uh, sitting in the mounds of data and doing fa- uh, sort of uh, planning uh, of the um, for the whole bank, uh, facilitating that process and all the reporting and so on, um, and developing a whole bunch of new stuff with, with a bunch of other folks, and that w- that was really interesting. And I applied to business schools from there. They offered me a job and told me in the next breath, "Don't do it. Go and do an MBA." <laughs> um, and yeah. I met a lot of people that had done MBAs there and. Yeah, it sort right. of demystified it a bit for me. Yeah. And I always knew if we were going to do an MBA, do it at a great school. Sure. Uh, and so I, I uh, applied, motorcycle run Europe, um, got into Yale, um, and there's a bunch of other stuff happening, and, and then and then off I went. And at Yale, you know, the game is these schools, they, they want to craft a class. So there's generally room for, like, you know, two or three Kiwis and Aussies, depending yeah. on how big the class is. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, if you... you and and we do bring something quite different. So I had a lot more practical, hands-on experience, a much much broader experience than than most of my classmates. And typically, they would have a lot deeper experience in a narrower niche. And that's part of the mix of the class. You want to have the you know sorts of these sorts of things. Uh, you know, the first lecturer I I got when I got there was a guy called Ken French. Uh, who you know people there French and farmer French fam- yeah yeah farmer wow. French yeah oh, um, and uh, and Ken you know you may not know but he's a a, a stunning uh, lecturer you know professor he's um, he's a he's a yeah he, he's a theatre clown uh, and he's, he's strolling up and down there you know so if you're coming out of jail and you've been communicating with two women and and uh, off he went and uh, and and he was talking about how do you how do you value options and. And I, and then he ended up teaching finance first year class, and I got into that class, and uh, and then he was the one, one of the three people that um, was, uh, uh, and I, I just had a blast, you know, I yeah. I really did, and and then uh, there was a um, uh, get it, you get into uh, they started a thing called the Yale Summer Associates Program, which was the Yale Investment Office placing people into their right. um, investment firms. And uh, the interviewers were Ken French, Dave Swinson, and um, I forget who it was, but he, he got promoted uh, and he ran one of the iBanks over there during the process, so he didn't do it. Um, and I went to see Ken and he, he sat down, we talked about windsurfing um, in Florida the whole time. And I said, oh, are you going to interview me? He said, oh, I, already, I already know what you're like in my <laughs> class because I talk a lot. Um, uh, I'm just trying to find out if you're a good guy or not. So <laughs> that was my interview. And then right. I went away to New Zealand for something or other, and they came back, and I had a letter saying congratulations, um, huh. and you, you, we're going to put you into this company. Now go talk to Dave, and I went to talk to Dave, and and uh, and, and it all went from there, and yeah. um, it was it was absolutely amazing <laughs> to be honest, um, and and uh, and the, the school itself. I mean, you're sitting inside Yale, and so what I did is I picked professors when I was there. So I had, um, um, you know, just a a wealth of great uh, professors. So you know. Uh, 
uh, Flom, who was the uh, the guy who um, made Scatting Arts, Meager and Flom, Joe Flom, uh, he was, um, you know, he's g- getting pretty old at that stage, but he'd come in and we'd do Thursday afternoons with Uncle Joe, um, yeah. sitting around talking about m and He's the m and king in America. Yeah. Uh, we... Um, you know, we had um, the guy who ran private equity for um, for Morgan Stanley uh, come in, and he just the amount of work he did. He made all these case studies and put us into groups, and we just did deals, right? And we just did deal after deal after deal, and then he'd give us feedback. He, we'd give feedback on each of ourselves in the group, and then he he collate that all and then give us overall feedback. Huh. It was extraordinary, um, huh. and and just so on all, all through the it was a it was a class that. Um, the class worked as well, which is, you know, the first time they had two years in a row where the class worked, the school was on a, on a tear away, um, and, uh, and it's just kept going nuts since then. They were very good at finance and strategy. Uh, uh, Barry Nalbuff, um, he wrote um, uh, Competition uh, and uh, some other books um, uh, were theirs. Um, they, um, you know, he, he did this strategy stuff. Uh, we, you know, it was a b- bunch of great, great professors. I went across the road to the forestry school, the environmental school, right. and did a paper on industrial ecology with a, a chap called Ted Gradle. Industrial ecology is the circular economy stuff. Ted Gradle right. is the guy that wrote the book, uh, and, and and so on. And, and went across, did, went to, attended a few law school lectures and things like this. It was just just amazing place to be. And, and yeah. so, what you what you do after that? You've you've come out of that great environment. Yes, I went. I went. Uh, I got. I got. Um, got into McKinsey. Went on a motorcycle trip from Europe to uh, to Singapore. And then and then went over to McKinsey in Washington DC, huh. uh, and uh, that was '99. I started there, and I, I was there for two and a half years. Um, post 9/11, uh, post oh, yeah. uh, crash, um, it was um, yeah, I was out, and um, so I motorcycled north of South America for for a couple of years, yeah. and then I came back to New Zealand and. Um, Wanted to get into private equity, the tech capital, right? That was why yeah, I went to sure. go. Wanted to come back here and do that, and sure. uh, went and talked to everyone. And it was it was really it was, a, it was a scarily asleep, to be honest, the yeah. ecosystem. And yeah. I didn't really understand what I was. Uh, and so, but Lloyd Morrison gave me a job looking after all of his other companies, mm-hmm. the, the ones, uh, the, the non-infertile ones, and uh, these were universally uh, bound by the fact that they all lost money and. Uh, little dot-coms and music companies and things like this. Um, yeah. So I did what I could to help them. Um, and uh, along the way, I did a, a, a link exchange deal with TradeMe. Um, so uh-huh. I met Sam um, Morgan there. And I'd met Gareth and Joe's parents um, uh, and when I was motorcycling. They were, they were randomly in Cusco. And then uh, I, I got a gig overseas doing a, a turnaround in uh, Mount Isa, which is not a place I'd ever recommend you go. But luckily, the whole project blew up after a month. Um, and I, I got a call from Sam saying, "Hey, we've been made um, we've been made an offer by um, Telecom to buy the company for forty million. Uh, the guys um, reckon we're worth more like sixty, but I reckon we're worth worth more like eighty. <laughs> and, and I said, "Well, I reckon you're worth ten times that," which turned out to be remarkably prescient. Um, yeah. And he said, "Yeah, I know you do. Can you come in and show us?" And so I went in in early two thousand and three and. Um, and did a whole bunch of real back sort of. Uh, I, did, I didn't prefer, prepare a professional valuation. I just did a big, sure. big sure. forecast and spreadsheet and yeah. showed them a whole bunch of different valuation methodologies and walked yeah. them through it. And then he, he took that to the board. And I, I, I was trading in 400 to over a billion um, in value. And then I did a forecast there, and that was still holding pretty well, you know, in 2012. I haven't looked at it recently. I, I suspect it, it, fell, it fell away. That 
uh, then I stay, I stuck around and I did a, a bunch of uh, work around pricing and strategy and, and, and direction and so on. And, um, and then I went away and I, I just did a series of, of this over the years. I did a, an aluminium refinery turnaround in South Africa, which is really rewarding. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we got a lot of uh, emissions down. We um, saved a lot of Zulu jobs and things like this. Um, went to London, um, did a little kick there, going around Europe. Doing, doing some more motorcycling and stuff. Do you and have a motorcycle here in New Zealand? Yeah, I still, I still do. What sort of motorcycle? It's a 1200 GS Adventure BMW. So it's the, it's the kind of, oh, quote, yeah. it's ultimate adventure bike. But it, the reason I got that is that we're doing a lot of two-up riding. Yeah. Um, it's too big to do a real adventure. Um, but uh, now we've got two kids, so I need to get rid of it. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, so, you know, after that, um, I um, I got a call from Sam, and then it was the same call as last time, but the numbers were... A bit bigger. Yes. Uh, this time, yeah. it was an indicative offer of four hundred million. Can you can, can come and help us? And by the way, we're not going to give you a percentage upside. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I know this is going to hurt, but you know, there's other reasons to do this. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. it's a great thing to do, and, and you'll have done it. And um, and so I came back, and uh, and then basically sat there and did the um, the forecast again, and yes. <laughs> and a little deck um, yeah. which was used to sell the company, and uh, and, and and a little bit of. A bit of coaching and, and working you, with someone like Sam is amazing because you know you don't have to tell him stuff twice, right? He just sure. he just he didn't know stuff and then he does, and he's a very very sharp business guy. So, Sounds like Mark yeah. Zuckerberg, uh, and then he started as a software programmer and now he's a financier. In fact, what, what method did you end up using uh, for the, the valuation of trade? Yeah, unless it's proprietary. And oh no, I just do zero. I just did everything. So I did a big um, net present value. Um, Calculation, and then I did a bunch, a bunch of comparable work, and I yes. looked at how eBay valued things, and I did that and uh, as well. And you could use different um, measures to, for comps. Uh, you could use different discount rates for your yes. NPV. You could use different forecast scenarios uh, for your for your financial model. So you add all those things together, it gets quite a lot. And you know, on comps, I might say, well, you know, here's the different companies, and you use those different ratios. You get these yeah. sort of things. And here's eBay from a year ago, and here's the transaction eBay did to buy someone, and here's this thing over here, and so on. Right. So just keep. Just, just show them the gamut of it, and you know, if you're if you're a valuer, you need to come up with a number. But that wasn't my mandate. It was more to show guys don't leave money on the table. So yes. my main thing when I walked in was like, do not sell to telecom for eighty million bucks, because it probably would only be worth eighty million bucks uh, under telecom because that you know they would stuff it. So when we did the deal with Fairfax, there were you know there, there were three terms: the price, including the earnout. Sam gets to leave after two years or something like that, yeah. and don't touch us <sighs> because you're not going to get the the earnout and, and 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 stuff if you yes. come in there and put your Fairfax yes. fingers in there, uh, and it worked. It worked bang on. We had three forecasts. Um, we had a, a frothy, a, a um, par, and a low. Um, we threw out the low and basically gave them the um, the, the the other two as high and low, <laughs> and uh, and and the, the the results came in almost smack on the on the new low on the, on the par one. It was amazing. So which is why the earnout was paid over two tranches because it right. was just there, you know. So yeah, it was pretty cool. And, and then after that, yeah. you you, you so I stayed I stayed at Trade Me for a little bit and then I flipped into Fairfax. Um, um, Fairfax, which with the stuff, which is uh, the you know the, the the whole company is called stuff now, but this is the digital bit. 
Um, I was only there for a few months. Hand, there was a big turnaround project, to be honest. I handed it across to Bernard Hickey. They invited me to come back when Bernard resigned, but I, just, I was doing a gig in Australia and um, lots of money and in a nickel refinery, and it was a really, really interesting project. Um, so I was there for a couple of years, and then I just said, I, I need to go back to New Zealand and, yeah. as, I, as I said at the time, take a vow of poverty and, and actually go start something. Yeah. So I came back here, and I, really the three or four things happened at once. Um, Better by Design. Um, NTT got me to one of the one of those programs and sure. did a bunch of work with um, um, Peter Hathenthwaite, Rita Bone, um, Andrew Jones, um, helping companies. Um, then um, Pacific Fiber came along, yes. uh, and uh, so we started that. The four of us that started that and uh, and couldn't get it away, but trying to build this fiber optic cable. Yeah. Um, and then through that, I met Chris, uh, and uh, and I, then NTT Better by Capital came along. And that was a program almost designed for me where you go on and help companies on their capital journeys. Sure. Um, so I've helped hundreds of companies through that program now. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, and Chris and I started Puna Kaki Fund uh, and, and about, about at the same time. Fast forward to now, um, Puna Kaki Fund is well away. Obviously, uh, we've, got, we've got other people who have done the fiber optic cable and doing very well over. Ian Edgar, back that in the end, good on him. Uh, and, uh, and then we've got... Um, uh, I'm married with two children, which is all new. So it's yeah. uh, the, you know, well, it's like being an older father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I'm in my early um, uh, yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been really, really fun journey. Um, a little bit backwards in some ways. I had a lot of really good adventures internationally, and then I've come back here to settle down yeah. um, and start a career. <laughs> so, not unusual. Yeah. Not unusual. Yeah. Look, Lance, thank you very much for your time. That's been um, extremely interesting, and I think it'll be one of the highlights of uh, of this year's uh, episode um, series. And if anyone's listening to this in the, in the future years, make sure you're looking at the Pernikaiki website to see uh, if there are any share offers and rights issues uh, that, are, that, are, that are coming up. All good. Thanks thank a lot. Thank Appreciate you. it. Cheers. All opinions expressed by podcast guests and myself are solely our own opinions and do not express the opinion of anyone else. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. See you next time.